Hello and welcome to another episode of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. My name is Joe Montague and I am your host. I hope you've all had a wonderful week. I've got an extremely cool guest for you today. His name is Paul Butler and he is a multi-instrumentalist and producer uh, from the Isle of Wight and his name has actually cropped up on the podcast before. He used to own the console that is at ATA Records, All Things Analog Records, which is based here in Leeds, a recording studio and label. And Neil Innes, who runs that studio, has a big Swedish, I think it's a broadcast desk, I'm pretty sure it will be a broadcast desk, um, that used to be owned by Paul Butler. And since I found that out, I've wanted to speak to Paul for the podcast and I've He's, he's a very busy man. He's a Grammy-nominated producer, you know. And he... Uh, so anyway, I've been trying to get hold of him through various means. And then actually, as it happens, through this podcast, I was contacted by some guys that grew up with Paul on the Isle of Wight. And it turns out that we've got some friends in common aside from those guys. And I uh, went and did some gigs down at the Isle of Wight and caught up with those guys and saw their studio. I'd love, if they're listening to this, I'm going to try and persuade them and twist their arm to get them on the podcast too, because they're doing some really cool stuff. And anyway, one thing led to another, and I I said I'd love to get Paul on the podcast, and they offered to put us in touch, and that was that. So he's produced some incredible records. Um, Most notably for me is Michael Kiwanuka's Home Again album, which is his first album. And if you don't know Michael Kiwanuka, go and check him out. The whole thing is done... It's just so saturated. It was my first uh, kind of, I, not first, it was just a, a glimpse of a modern record that suddenly sounded old. And it, it was a real kind of like, wow, how have you made this record sound like it was done sort of Motown era? Uh, and it's a pop record and it, it's just incredible. I, I can't really even describe it. Um, but yeah, go and check that record out. And uh, that's kind of the thing that that made me want to speak to Paul. So very excited to have him on. He's now living over in LA. I think it's LA. And he's getting involved in Dolby and all things uh, sort of interesting. But the the cool thing about Paul that I'm going to try and whet your appetite for the podcast here. The cool thing about Paul is that he has a very analog mentality towards recording, which is something I bang on about nearly every episode, but actually doesn't, doesn't use analog exclusively within his productions so as you'll hear in this there's a a lot of uh kind of other things happening which give the impression that something was done analog and it's all to do with using the door and using everything that's at your disposal but coming up with a result that sounds human and natural and that doesn't necessarily have to be done all through analog means although paul grew up recording in uh, in all analog and then he kind of kept that mentality on whilst improving um into a sort of more modern recording means and uh, and has produced fantastic results so that was the the really interesting and i didn't know that actually until speaking to paul so it was a really interesting combination of all of those ideas so i'm super super happy to be sharing this with you so we'll, we'll dive straight in here we go paul butler Are you ready for my attempt at an advert? Here it comes. 
Make Noise Pro Audio are specialists in used pro audio equipment and since 2015 they've been on an endless quest to supply all things modern, old, vintage and obscure. Everything from outboard, microphones, synthesizers, audio interfaces, drum machines, mixing consoles, studio monitors, amplifiers, cabling, furniture and everything in between. Go and check them out at makenoiseproaudio.co.uk. Sam's a lovely chap, definitely go and do it. Enjoy the episode! Growing up on the Isle of Wight and, and kind of what that was like, because you know, I so I'm from Milton Keynes, and you know, we had quite quick access into London, so I was off watching shows quite a lot, and um, you know, sort of out of out of a, a scene in London, but there was definitely a scene where I grew up, and an Isle of Wight, obviously, it's an island in its own right, so you're you're limited by what's there and who comes to visit if you get bands at all. So what what was kind of growing up with an interest in music like over there? Growing up in the Isle of Wight, I mean, I mean, you know, it's sheltered to say the least, but then, you know, um, necessity is the mother of invention and you, you, you have to do it yourself. So, you know, as it turns out, it was a blessing that I kind of looked at the world um, and just thought, you know, I looked at I looked at what was successful music at the time, or at least appreciated music, and I just thought I can do that. And no one told me I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, in hindsight, another enormous blessing is that my mother decided to introduce music into the family. There's no music on either side. There's nothing. Okay. And at the age of five, she got me playing the piano. And that amazing woman stuck with it until I enjoyed music. <laughs> Years later. So, you know, she just made me practice. And I did, uh, you know, about a half an hour, but mostly an hour a day. Oh, wow. Um, and she made me sit at that rickety old piano, the one that it was a gift from someone. and. I went through my grades uh, at home and then it wasn't until I was about 12 or 13 I was watching Beverly Hills Cop 2 and um, I had this little Casio you know I mean Casio doing a pretty amazing job at that point and you have this (laughs) tiny little (laughs) they were practically synthesizers yeah but they were kind of very consumer still as well. So whatever one it was, I loved. And it was a Christmas present. And I got this little thing and I sit in front of the telly and went, do, 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 like exact. I was like, <laughs> I could do that now. Cool. I can listen to something and then play it back. And then it kind of just, it snowboarded from practically from that. And then realized I could, you know, I, you know, I had a musical ear. I could hear something. I could play it. And then went into you know making my own stuff up and then enjoying it and then forming a little band at school our first little band was called new creatures nice. good name lee boxall and joe hutchinson and fletch kind of like started stepping in as the lyricist who's someone who again no one told him he couldn't be a poet so we had nothing to compare it to other than our own you know time and each other's company um 
and then that went into you know recording a little bit so my first little again like a little Tascam little four track um and then I was like okay I can multi-track I'm Tom Dowding this situation here <laughs> doing this with this multi-track and then that progressed to you know like okay so I can EQ I remember all the little moving parts I had a little um Sony Walkman with an EQ on it oh, I had, nice. had a five band like uh, graphic equalizer on the front and I loved it. I think I loved it just as much as what the, what music I was listening to when I was like 12, 13. So I was like, I can EQ. And then the little port studio had EQ on it. And then I think it had, I don't know, there was just, there was some point where I learned about compression. I was just like, oh, it makes that sound. I don't understand <laughs> what it's doing, but you know, like it makes that sound. And then that moved into a Roland VS880 and I started using the digital effects. Um, so it was a progression of starting from absolute scratch, no one teaching. Um, and I just like got one extra bit after another until it led up to meeting another person who released music, which was um, some friends over in Cows on the Isle of Wight. It yeah. was a guy called Max Brennan and Pat Watson and Delta T and fretless asm and then that led to holistic recordings a guy called steve dungy had this very small label and he had this connection and affinity with a lot of isle of white artists and you know i again i just looked at it and was like oh well i guess i'll just go to steve and then make this song and steve will release it and steve <laughs> was into it and released it and i think it was 1997 i released a tune called comfy club um, which was, I guess, inspired at the time by a Stan Kenton record. Oh, cool. I, was, I, I managed to wangle my way that way towards big band, film score. I remember Lalo Schifrin being a big influence at that point. Brian Eno, Aphex Twin, Lalo Schifrin, Stan Kenton, whoosh, over wow. that. Um, so... I, I guess that was a, my my weird entry with a bit of Felicuti. <laughs> so you got you got a pretty eclectic listening mix at that point. I mean, like yeah, Felicuti, well, and I I didn't discover Felicuti until I was well into my twenties. You know what? Who was introducing this music to you? So I had someone review my first record, and it had a track called Bula on it. And someone said, that sounds like Felicuti. And I mean, I, I don't know how. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know how. I mean, you know, in hindsight, that's about as big as a compliment gets. Yeah. Um, and it had like an, like an element of like a, you know, Tony Allen-esque rhythm to it. And then I was asked to go and support Max with one of his shows in Japan and while we we're in Tokyo I was in one of those incredible eight floors up tiny astounding record shops where everything is just perfectly laid out yeah and saw zombie and monkey banana on uh like a 12 inch and I got that and took it home I was like what <laughs> <laughs> and then was very obsessed with 
with that period. I mean, it was just, and it was, I think it was the same year that Fella died. Wow, okay. So, you know, and then I also had a connection to Giles Peterson. He, he kind of spotted Comfort Club right at the beginning and like put that on compilations and I was kind of following what Giles was doing. And again, it was, I mean, going back another step, I was also very lucky to have these incredible friends on the Isle of Wight, um, particularly Russell Brook, who I was flatmate with when I was living in Shanklin. He's just, a, he's a good friend. And he, he kind of taught me how, kind of how to listen to music, I guess. <laughs> and he was a profound record collector the kind of person that would take a bus into Newport in the center of the island, just like, I don't know, 15 miles away, something like that, and then would buy a seven inch with his return bus money and then walk home. Amazing. <laughs> Russell had this wonderfully eclectic record collection and re really knew how to dig in, you know, in, in a, we were very lucky on the Isle of Wight in the sense that, you know, we had this, crazy run of music festivals in the late 60s leading up to the 1970 um you know freshwater uh, isle of wight festival so the demographic changed on the isle of wight considerably 650,000 people came to the isle of wight festival in 1970 well yeah that's a lot of people yeah <laughs> like 200,000 plus hit the last of the pre wall at Glastonbury when pe when a lot of people were jumping the fence and it was frightening <laughs> <laughs> those pinch points in between fields were were were, were frightening so you can imagine 650,000 people on, a, on an island that had probably close to 100,000 as a population at the time and a lot of people you know didn't forget the Isle of Wight and either stayed or came back to the Isle of Wight including my parents so we had this you know music loving demographic that moved in which then ultimately got rid of their records at some point so people like russell and i don't know a bunch of other people like there's, there's there's quite a few to name but um like i said i was very lucky to have this these crate diggers i think it's just sort of um it sounds what something that it sounds to me is is quite important is that there's this nice mix of um this particular point in time that you've just described but also being on being away from sort of the main mainland hustle and also having the freedom um of being told not being told that you're you can't do something so you you know you're you're able to express yourself and encouraged to express yourself and you're not feeling you know there's none of there's no sort of fomo if you like of like oh well that's going on over there and i need to be there you're just sort of in your sort of a bubble if i couldn't call it that like of just doing your thing and and growing really a lot within that bubble and there's probably something to be said for for that especially in this day and age of of the way that you know sort of everything is um sort of being outside of of the main the main sort of bulk of activity and and building a, a profile within uh, where you were is a quite it sounds like it's quite an important part of your story. Yeah, I mean it's almost impossible now if you want to be part of social media and 
be that connected to the rest of the planet. I mean, you know, it was like a, you know, I was a monk practically. (laughs) (laughs) I was really into learning and going deep into my art. You know, I was kind of like, that was at that point where I was just like, I'm not getting a mobile phone. What? I don't want you to contact me at any point. That's crazy. (laughs) I was, you know, I was, I was into that. I was, I wonder, oh, yeah, I was, I was completely happy in a shed in a field with my instruments, learning and growing as a, as a musician and as a, I mean, not that I'd even call it that a musician or a producer at the time, but that's what I was doing. Yeah. You just didn't, you weren't, didn't call it anything. It was just that, that thing you were just doing. So yeah, it was kind of seamless. It was nameless. It was, it had zero pressure and um, yeah, that creates something very positive in a person i think when there's nothing to there's no real unhealthy competition at at that point it's just you and your little voyage of discovery it's it's attractive it's nice yeah i think it's really cool so the kind of period of time i'm quite interested in is um moving between the bees first album and then going to record at studio two and kind of how that this is a huge question I'm asking. So you, you take it however you want. <laughs> um, but sort of going, working on uh, on your own in a sense to create that first album and then going to, I mean, Studio Two of all places. And it, you couldn't get to sort of further points, I, I suppose. So if you could, I mean, how was that? What did you what did you learn from from sort of making a record yourself or a few records yourself and then coming going into studio two and go you know suddenly being in the probably the most legendary place <laughs> that you could have chosen to go to um well first of all i guess the story of how abbey road studio two came about so everything was fine <laughs> <laughs> and in fact you know i was against the idea that you had to go to a big studio. I was against the idea that you had to be part of anything mainstream. Mm-hmm. Be, you know, um, to have some sort of working career in the music industry, for example. I was against it. I was against major, uh, not against it, but I was, I was, I didn't want to go down the major label route. I, you know, I, I wanted to run it myself ultimately. And then I came, and then this one of my HHB speakers blew one of the main cones and I sent it back to HHB. And ever since that point, not ever since, but post getting this repaired speaker back, I would have these horrible comments back from the label. And I'm like, Paul, it's, they sound like shit. <laughs> and I was like, I- I don't know. I don't, I have no idea. I'm trying. I mean, it's, it's like mixing's getting harder, but you know, but I get it to, till it sounds good. And then I send them off to, I think at that point it was Virgin. And then, um, yeah, the, uh, this guy would, would just be like, they, they sound terrible. They sound, abs- they sound like dog shit. They're disgusting. I'm so disappointed that we've signed you and you're, you're submitting these. <laughs> <laughs> and uh it was very confusing and then um 
I said to my manager, Joe Hillier at the time, I was like, put me in a big studio. I'm, I'm done with this poxy shed. And um, he's like, where do you want to go? And I was like, Abbey Road. <laughs> and he was like, well, your new label owns Abbey Road. So why don't I ask? Um, so they asked. And of course, the label that owns the studio are going to say, of course, you can come in this studio at $8,000 a day. Of course you can. <laughs> You'll never pay off your advance. You'll <laughs> never pay off your recording costs. Not that I knew about anything about recoupment at that point. So <laughs> that's what they did. You know, they said, of course you can come in here. We were like, wow. We'll never pay off. We'll never pay it off. Let's go. <laughs> so we went in. So we went in. And, and we, we had our demos ready. And the demo sounded really good as well. I was really happy. So it turns out that HHB wired the speaker out of phase and oh. then sent it back to me. So I was trying to make mixes sound good on a pair of out of phase speakers, which I was kind of unaware of at the time. No, I was 100% unaware of it. <laughs> Um, so the reason for going to Abbey Road and never ever paying off that that debt is because some twit at HHB, which you know I'm kind of grateful for because I got to record in Abbey Road for six weeks. Wow! I did three weeks. We did three weeks tracking, um, solid tracking, where the cleaning lady will wake me up every morning when I'd be lying on the desk or on a couch or whatever. I barely didn't rest for that duration oh no that was no that's more the mixing period but there's three weeks of tracking and then three weeks mixing and it was it was heavenly it was wild i befriended um lester the microphone tester um i we removed everything new from the studio two setup so the knee vr was cut off uh, we didn't even go there. I think we used it as some sort of like returns for monitoring. Okay. And then we wheeled in the TG12345 console. Yeah. Um, and then everything was routed through that. Routed, sorry. <laughs> but you're, you're in America now. You can say routed. Um, and then I was like, right, we'll have six Fairchilds, we'll have eight Pultex, I'll have the entire Abbey Road mic collection on stands ready to go because there wasn't really that many people using the main Studio One at the time. So M50s, M49s, U47s. I went through the entire collection to work out my favorite ones. I got the um, advice from Lester and a few other people on their, their you know, preferred number. They're like, you know, Lester was like, number three, U47, it's a lot of people's favorite and and we whittled it down to this chain it was it was insane it was like oh that's how they make those records yeah. i see so this u47 number three i used john lennon's spit guard so lester <laughs> put it out of this special drawer that was like reserved which is this you know they're like museum pieces yeah yeah this funny little l like metal grill so like air kind of did this <laughs> <laughs> that's, I've, I've never seen one since so i had that set up um and then that would be going into a revolution red preamp i kept this crazy guy i think he made his version of the red 
Red Five style I see. prick. Okay. It was it was the best out of out of the that I went through. Any of the, anything TG was kind of wacky. I loved it, but it was pretty wacky. Um, but the TG, not everything, but the TG separate EQs and the limiter or a, and a Fairchild and the, and a Pultec was was practically the chain. It was like the cost of my house at the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I remember putting on headphones using these DT770s and there was nothing in the way with this wonderful chain and this beautiful microphone. It felt like, it felt like I had no headphones on and it was just this, it's so much space. And I was like, oh, that's, that's like a Frank Sinatra thing or, or a Aretha Franklin thing. I, 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 could, I couldn't, you know, say what it was, but it was just, it's just like, oh my God, I get it now. I'm not against big studios anymore. This is astounding. The, ro the room is beautiful. Like all of the equipment worked. We had like on-site engineers because there would be one of the Fairchilds would go down every day or, you know, there'd be a problem with one of the Pultecs every day or the TG, one element of the TG would go down, but there'll be someone in there coming and fix it and, and, and crack on. Someone yeah. to set the tape machine every day. It was gorgeous. It's amazing. Yeah, it's a special, it's, I mean, it's a special place and to get to, to, get to spend that much time there. Yeah. Uh, you know, a reasonably early part of your career. So it's almost like, it sets you up for that's what the sound is you know that's this is what the best could be you know um from from here on in that's kind of whether it's conscious or subconscious that's a reference point that you you're working against because you've heard you've heard that firsthand yeah i've heard that firsthand i mean it's it does i don't stop learning in this world as of far course. as yeah, yeah. production goes i mean i'm as excited as i was when you know it's it's stayed up here since getting that Tascam Porter Studio, to be honest. You know, everything's amazing. A, a tape machine still blows my mind. <laughs> Truly. I mean, what the hell? How? how? <laughs> I was talking to somebody the other day about the, the, the iron filings on the tape, you know, explaining to somebody who was in my studio about, you know, said, do you know how tape works? And I sort of explained my sort of rudimental understanding of it because I don't really know. I just, I just know that, you know. <laughs> yeah it's just like as if as if the there's the the album that we've just mixed is on on that piece of tape that's just there that's yeah it that's, your mind. <laughs> that's it that's your explanation <laughs> i don't it's i mean i i i i love chatting to techs not every tech but most techs and we have to understand that we would be absolutely screwed without their expertise so I was, you know, I always, that's a sound advice. Like always give the time to a, to a, one of these, these genius people who can, who can actually give you the time and their expertise and try and try and explain some of these things to you. <laughs> it flies past your head, but you know, every, every time you go back in to get a little bit more information and like a little bit more comes in. So what, um, from, Talk to me about what happened from Studio Two and then moving to what was the Steam Rooms. Um, how did that um, sort of, yeah? What so you you know gone through this fairly sort of quite a seminal experience, I suppose, at Studio Two, and then uh, how did you approach having a studio from that point? Presumably, you came away from that whole thing incredibly inspired and and quite buzzing. 
trying to think. I mean, obviously, like budget was obviously huge. <laughs> I mean, we are. I mean, <laughs> like we owed Virgin at that point nearly a million pounds. Wow! <laughs> Believe how much they charged us to go into Abbey Road. You know, it wasn't until like afterwards we we're like, what? I mean, the food budget was over a hundred thousand. Wow. Oh no, 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 sorry. The food budget was I think nearly seventy thousand or something like that. The ludicrous. Six... It was ludicrous. Yeah. It was it was like, oh, I see how I see how they do this now. Clever. Um so you know, it was like, okay, well, no one's gonna pay for that again. And we were at this very strange point in the music industry where you know it was the end of making a lot of money from vinyl and CD sales. It was just like, it was dive bombing at that point. And we were moving into streaming and it was, you know, it was like maybe at a certain point they were reclaiming those kind of like budget spends, but we were just, we were just on the wrong side of it. So we actually moved to, I think, I guess Octopus. Yeah, Octopus was... Octopus was still virgin, um, but I think Ferdy was, I think the new, the new um, MD was coming in and it was just, it was just a lot of people changing positions very fast within the music industry. And, you know, if, if you're not, if you're not a personal signing of the main guy, it's very unlikely unless you're already a priority act to get the, the support. So it was the right time to sort of go back and and set up the the studio at home and i bought a house Aaron and i bought a house in ventnor that had an old studio in it and oh, cool. it time to go back in and you know live where we were working and and we needed a place to rehearse and and most of the band nearly all of the band were were in ventnor in where the studio was and yeah that's where we started rehearsing and 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 ended up recording octopus and um i mean i i love that setup i i'm sad i miss that setup I so don't this know is you... the swedish broadcasters that you had yeah, and... you, you've interviewed the guy haven't you that, that yeah owns neil yeah neil. So, yeah so he's in leeds um i've yeah i've done quite a few recording sessions down at neil's studio through that I... desk <laughs> Well, how's how is it, and how's Neil, and and was he happy with it? And yes, yes to all of those. <laughs> yeah, he absolutely adores it. <laughs> it's um, it's one of the worst things. What my worst moves as far as like kit sold. I I I love that console, and and I miss it. Yeah, I think he's had um. Uh, every time I go in, some of the modules have been taken out and sent oh, yeah. away and stuff. And uh, but yeah, he he completely adores it, and it's um. Actually, from the conversation for this podcast I did with Neil, that a lot of it's it's generated quite a lot of conversation. Um, that particular desk, I've not not, you know, it, it just is a. It seems to be a like kind of quite a cool little find. You know, it's uh, kind of looks just sort of really um, how do you, you know, it's grey like gunmetal grey and really quite uh, quite an aggressive looking thing. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, it yeah, sounds fantastic. Yeah, I've never, I've not seen one since, and obviously it was like a you know, purpose built for Swedish radio. Um, 
Well, the guy, the guy that um, maintained that console is named Blake Devitt. Uh, he's a good friend of mine, and he flies around the world uh, fixing people's very, very fancy needs. <laughs> um, but yeah, I met him early on. He was the guy that he was working for Funky Junk a lot at the time, and he was the one that kind of like. Uh, adapted that console for more studio use so it's more sellable at Funky Junk and that's where we met and then yeah he was coming down regularly to do maintenance on that console and <laughs> he's such a character but he would be down in the basement like screaming at that console <laughs> why would anyone put this much time and effort into building this thing <laughs> The shielding has shielding. There's this, this, the, the, the buttons were like, it was like clockwork inside. So you press a button and it would push a cog round that would turn uh, an axle that would gently push something in to make contact and then come back again to like, it's, it's like, it's like whoever built this was of the mindset that this didn't need maintenance for 50 years. Like, <laughs> So incredible, the, the attention to detail of how that thing was constructed. I, I, I love that. I was so, I, so, I love that console. But I'm, I'm, I'm happy Neil's, you know, I, I, I sold it for pittance. It was, it was so sad. I, I sold it, obviously, before leaving the UK. Sure. I mean, it, it's being put to good use. So he's got a fantastic studio there, and he, he makes some um, amazing music through it. So, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's being loved for sure. <laughs> I one thing I'm I was quite interested about reading just you know when I was reading up the history about the uh, the sort of the steam rooms and the the way that that you worked at that studio was the fact that obviously that desk doesn't have much in the way of of an EQ section really so it forces you into some uh, into basically getting sounds through mic positioning and and on the front end of things before it's even got into the microphone um you know forces you to make those choices and I mean, back going back to the Abbey Road conversation, it's exactly the same. That TG desk does, is not, by modern standards, doesn't have this, that facility really either. Um, right. So I'm I'm kind of interested in what you learn um, from using that desk and and getting to know it. Um, it taught me about phase, and the more. Um, the more I look at that, uh, it, I guess, you know, like if you, if you have multiple microphones in a room, it, everything is, it's just a relation. It's a relationship to everything else in the room, which I love. I, I love the idea of like, I won't even say big rooms, like room recordings where yeah. you're capturing something special in a space. So ultimately you're micing up space. Like, yes, there is utility for close micing and dynamic mics and, and the likes to get like hits and transients and, and, and everything else that you need for like impact immediacy. But I, I love the world of micing up space. Like how, how, what is it like up there? What's it like over here? Like what's the relationship between the drums and the, and the piano here and here and here, da, da, da. So, Everything's a relationship and it's all relationship of waves. So if you're, if you, if that's up here and this is down here, 
and then you flick the phase on that one that's gonna that's that's actually changing um you know that's changing gain that's changing the the eq how that's relating to that it's huge so on that console which was really helpful and i know all consoles have this and it's it's, it's easy you can do this and, and you should do this like for example if you have if you if you're set up on a console and you've got eight mics in a room or something just go for it phase on off on off on off on off does is there anything that's on there like just keep doing just like keep changing it this one had like like a little um, on off rotary pot Okay, so there we go. The first part of my conversation with Paul Butler. I should point out, if you haven't noticed already, that's everybody's got something to hide except me and my monkey, the isolated drums for it. And it's quite, I mean, literally quite alarming because of the fire bell that's in there. <laughs> um, and I, I just felt like I should bring it up this week because it's quite a uh, quite a particular sound. Anyway, um, while, while we're talking about this, I've started making these fun kind of... Um, breakdown videos of these tracks that i i do the isolated drums for on my instagram at all you need is drums um i may well have mentioned it in other episodes in fact i probably have and you're probably sick to death of him hearing me mentioning it already um i haven't had a huge amount of sleep this week and that means i can't remember <laughs> so anyway i hope you enjoyed that episode with um with paul butler there's more from him next week um, and we talk about a little bit more about his recording process and some other really cool stuff. So yeah, I'm, I can't tell you how excited I am to have spoken with Paul. It's, it's a, even if I was the only person to listen to that episode, I don't care. <laughs> that would be, make me happy. Um, so yeah, I hope you got something from it too. Um, I hope you all have a lovely week. That just leaves me to say you can find me on my website, allyouneedersdrums.com. I'm on Instagram at allyouneedersdrums or at Joe Montague Drums. I just want to say thank you to Adam Mallet for the artwork he supplies to the podcast, to Joe Kane for the intro and outro music, and most importantly, you guys for listening. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or Spotify. It really does help. Um, and please feel free to share and spread the word. Um, and uh, yeah, have a lovely week, and I will be back with you more. I will be back with more next week. Goodbye.